This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leder. I'm Hannah Strong. And I'm Charles Bromesco. On the show this week, first we're learning Norse code in Robert Eggers' Viking epic The Northman, then girls just want to have nuns in Paul Verhoeven's erotic drama Benedetta, and in Film Club, what's best in life? Find out when we tackle Conan the Barbarian. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Hannah, Charles, always a pleasure. Charles, beaming in, transatlantic. How are you doing? I I could not be happier to be here representing the interests of the United States. (laughs) How are things over there? So every time you're on, way back when you came on to talk us through the Netflix as a a phenomenon, and uh, those films just keep coming. Any highlights for you with the recent batch? Yeah, well, let's see. This this has been a more humane month than most, and that um, we've gotten New Link later, which is like a real motion picture, an actual an actual movie, which is always very disorienting when when it comes along in, in the thin slurry of like Polish crime thrillers and and Korean dramas. Um, no, it's uh, it's 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 been all right. That was a good one. Um, there was one other one that I enjoyed. Oh, oh no. Uh, one that I did not enjoy was The Bubble. I saw new uh, Judd Apatow, which is also a Netflix right. motion picture. And that is what I mean when I say that a lot of these feel like fake movies. That's <laughs> right, okay. But you, you you join the chorus for Apollo 10 and a half because David Jenkins last week. This is, I mean, this is a pro Linklater publication just so uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I had to fall in line. Luckily, I also did like it. And Hannah, how's tricks with you? Uh, I saw that your your child, your your book, is now <laughs> made flesh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she has been born into the world. Uh, yeah, we got our, our copies of Sophia Coppola Forever Young uh, back from the printers, which was a very, very exciting moment. As you two, my fellow authors, both know, um, being able to hold your book for the first time is a very very strange and very nice experience so yours yeah, is a uh, yours is approximately baby weight i feel like we're doing a coffee table <laughs> you can kind of cradle it in the same way yeah when i was kind of holding it up uh, adam took my picture so i could send it to my mom and um i did feel like i was like holding a baby <laughs> and i got very emotional and like i was like sending the photo to my uncle and 
um, he's been very supportive of my career. And he said to me, he, all he said in the email was, wow, I've always wanted to write a book, but it's a dream that I never managed to realise. Looks like you've done it. <laughs> With an exclamation mark. So, and I nearly cried because I thought that was a very, oh. like, a very uncool thing to say. Um, but yeah, it is out in the US on the 17th of May and the UK on the 28th of May. We're having wow. a little shindig at the BFI on the 14th of May. If people would like to come, it's free to attend. <laughs> come and buy my book. <laughs> and you're going on the road as well, right, with some, some more events? Yeah, yeah, very excitingly. I will be in the, uh, uh, the United States in June and July. I will be in New York and Los Angeles with various events that are yet to be announced but have thankfully been confirmed now because otherwise that would have been a very expensive holiday. Um, so yeah, that kind of more news to come. But yeah, I I couldn't kind of be uh, more excited to show everyone the book. It really is beautiful, and I must give um, a shout out to Tersha Nash, who is our one of our designers here at um, TCO London, and she really like her art direction on the book is like second to none. She totally smashed it. So yeah, very exciting times. Very exciting. I wish you all the best with it. But we do have. A couple of new releases to talk about before May comes along, at least. We have The Northman and Benedetta to talk about this week. We should kick things off with The Northman. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Prince Amleth is on the verge of becoming a man when his father is brutally murdered by his uncle, who kidnaps the boy's mother. Two decades later, Amleth is now a Viking who raids Slavic villages. He soon meets a seeress who reminds him of his vow, save his mother, kill his uncle, avenge his father. Now, this is a very exciting film. Of course, it's the cover film of the latest issue of Little White Lies. But first, before we dive into our review section, let's hear from Anya Taylor-Joy in conversation with our very own David Jenkins. Welcome, Anya Taylor-Joy, to the Little White Lies podcast. Thank you. And I, I hear you've seen the copy of Little White Lies with the Northman on the cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just so exciting to be able to hold something in your hands. I've gotten so used to everything being online, so having a tangible copy is pretty amazing. 
Yeah, we're 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 all about you know keeping the print dream alive. Love that. And um, big I mean, supporter. I guess in a way, doing a film like The Northman, you're working with Robert Eggers, who is keeping the the tangible, tactile, active filmmaking alive as well. Completely. Um, it was such a dream come true to go back to my original film family. It was so wonderful to go back to that way of working. The second you step on set of a Robert Eggers movie, you know you're going to be cold. You know you will more than likely be uncomfortable. And I thrive in that. <laughs> I just love it. And because everything's been storyboarded before you show up, you just get this massive sense of accomplishment by the end of the day if you've got it, because you only need to get it right once, but it takes so many takes to get that one magic take, but when you get it, oh, it's the best feeling in the world. And what's the, what's the prep you're doing for, like, you know, you know in the next few days you're going to be walking onto a Robert Eggers set. What's, what are you doing in those days ahead of the big day? I'm buying books. Right. <laughs> I am buying books because I've figured out that as long as my little trailer land, and by trailer land I don't even mean an actual trailer, I mean like a tent on the side of a mountain <laughs> will make me content. As long as I have like a nice candle and all of my books, I can stay there for ever and be absolutely fine. And is that, is that like the cliche of like, you know, you often hear about working on set and having, having to wait long, long times between takes. Is it for a film like The, the, the Northman where there was such intricate shots and setups and production design, mm -hmm. <laughs> is, that, is, is that very much the case? Well, you also have the weather. I mean, the majority of this film takes place outside and we shot in Belfast. The weather is um, very changeable. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's very sunny and then it's raining and then it's snowing and then and you're trying to maintain a kind of sense of continuity. <laughs> so, yeah, there is a lot of quote unquote wasting around. But I I just love every element of the filmmaking experience. I really I was so happy on this movie. It was kind of absurd. And are you getting to like in like, I guess when you've got all this production design and, you know, there's such intricacy gone into the the actual places that your character is mm -hmm. in. Are, are you, do you feel like you have more of a, uh, an openness to kind of interact with the landscape? Is, is Robert kind of promoting that kind of way of, of acting or? Uh, yes and no. I find it, the word restrictive has been used in terms of because everything is so storyboarded and the camera movement is so exact, you do have to really hit your mark at the right time, otherwise the take doesn't work and that's already been, you know, picked for you. Yeah. But I find that very freeing because then you find yourself getting very creative within those boundaries. Mm -hmm. What's magical about being in the land is that it informs so much, especially on a movie like this, about how tough these people were and the reality of their situation. Mm -hmm. You cannot, like I remember something that I initially struggled with was not having and I know that Robert felt this in writing it, having to be less florid in my manner of speaking. It's a very heavy, semi-monotonous way of communicating. Mm -hmm. And then you get out into the landscape and you're like, oh yeah, I understand why things need to be direct and why things need to be understood and clear because otherwise you're more than likely going to perish. So it's kind of transportive in that sense. Entirely, yeah, yeah. yeah completely. Nice. Um, could you talk a bit about your, I guess, the, 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 how your character was built 
as in the look and the the the, the, the sort of aesthetic of of your character Olga in the film. Can you talk a bit about how she kind of was developed? Well, our incredible costume designer Linda, who worked with us on The Witch and also did The Lighthouse with Robert, it's all about authenticity. So everything is made as far as we can with all of the same materials. And I'm not really wearing warmies beneath it. You're kind right. of, you're really, really doing it. Um, something I really loved about my costume was the uh, village that Olga comes from. They embroider their stories into their pinafores. And so my, you know, everything has so much meaning behind it. You don't have very many possessions, but the possessions that you do have are so precious. Um, and yeah, I was just, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and get covered in mud and then be sent on my merry way. And I felt entirely thrilled by that prospect. Not a lot of time in the makeup chair, could dress myself. And one of my favorite things is being able to sit down wherever you want because you're already filthy. So it doesn't right. really matter if you go and you sit on the side of the mountain because you're supposed to look that way anyway. Another thing about the magic of movies that we all take for granted is that, you know, when you're between takes, you're just like frozen statue. Oh, entirely. You know? I mean, on a film like Emma, you can't sit down because then you have to be re-steamed and you, you know, you have to be, if you get food on one of the costumes, that's three hours added to your day. You know what I mean? There must be some kind of implement there must be some like special designed chairs for Wall actors. leaning. Wall leaning, okay. Wall leaning, yes. But there, there must be a special kind of lint <laughs> roller on the wall before that happens. Wow. Um, I would love to know also, um, again, like Robert's really, you, you read a lot about Robert's like really intricate um, um, research process into mm -hmm. the, the, the kind of details of the film. And I'd love to know like how how he kind of imparts that to you, how he, he kind of gets that across to the actors. Does he, you know, you, you say you read lots of books in the trailers. Uh, are, you, are you reading books that he's giving you, like, the, you know, textbooks about Icelandic lore in 12th century? I mean, I think Robert might be one of the few people where I'll say I would rather hear him tell me about it than read it, right. because he does it with so much enthusiasm. It really, we both geek out over things quite intensely. <laughs> And so it's, and especially on a film like this, like he knew a lot about it, but then he was consistently learning. You know, it's not something that he grew up with as much as, you know, the witches of New England. Like that was where he was from. This is, he had an awful lot of knowledge and then he was adding to it. And every time he'd get a new tidbit, he'd come over and share it. And it just, I love to learn. And it feels like interactive history almost you're living it and mm -hmm. all of this information is something that adds to your character but at the same time you're also just learning it as a person if that makes sense yeah yeah no I mean it's I think that's what's so fun about his films is that you know they are completely idiosyncratic and like um have you have, do you talk to him about future projects do you talk to him about films that he might make for you in the future maybe we both really enjoy working together and we have a really like our working relationship and our friendship outside of a work environment is one of the most meaningful things to me and when we get to work together we're both just so thrilled so we obviously want to continue to work together in the future oh cool and um I, I guess you might not have had any interaction with her, but it's you, 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 with this film, you join this really small club of people who have been 
in a feature film with Bjork. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, she's she's incredible. She's absolutely amazing, and um, she is an incredible person to spend time with. And it was really funny because she works with somebody who's very, very talented called James Mary, who's become a, a good friend of mine. And he and I have a shared love of rocks. I think I found out that I, I might be Icelandic deep down in spirit. I feel very, oh, wow. I feel very, very connected to Iceland <laughs> and all of like the strange things that I love. It seems to be quite normal in that, <laughs> in that realm. Um, so yeah, just her and her team are so lovely and, and it was an utter privilege to spend time with them. And my, my last question is, I, I just, I guess a bit, a little bit off topic. I, I understand that you're going to be in Furiosa, mm -hmm. going to be shooting Furiosa. And I wondered, there's this new book that's come out about the shooting of Mad Max Fury Road and the kind of quite intense time that was 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 take on that set. Is that something you're going to read ahead of it or are you going to be like, I'll read that later? I don't think so. <laughs> I, think, I think I'll read it later. You know, everyone that I've met has been very kind, um... And we're all making the same film, and I'm I'm so excited to go out there and do that that I think I'll I'll give myself the gift of having my own experience, the and then yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe check that out a yeah. bit later. <laughs> I do need you to can, get on the plane, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can sync up your stories later. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Anya Taylor Joy, thank you so much for speaking to us. No, likewise, thank you. Thank you to David for picking that one up for us. And thank you for Annie Taylor-Joy for joining us. Hannah, I'll come to you first on the Northburn. Robert Eggers, God, what a what a journey he's going on from the Witch to the Lighthouse, now heading north even further <laughs> with the Northmen. Uh, should we be excited about this? Is that a question, Michael Leader? <laughs> um, you were with me at the premiere of The Lighthouse in Cannes. You know how I feel about our, our good boy. Um, no, uh, uh, yeah, I was super in the tank for this kind of as soon as it was announced. Um, I think particularly with the kind of creative team behind it, um, not only Robert, but his kind of co-writer. Now, <laughs> apologies to any Icelandic speakers out there because I'm sure I'm about to butcher this poor man's name, but is it Sjorn? I think it's Sion, yeah. There we go, Sion, um, who's the Icelandic poet, musician, author, bon vivant, um, who also co-wrote Lamb, so he's had a very busy um, sort of 2021, 2022. Uh, and then obviously Alexander Skarsgård and Bjork pops up, and it's really just, yeah, a, a whole roster of um, Scandinavian talent, plus Robert, I guess. And um, yeah, I it just kind of felt to me like we were going to get to see Eggers do something on a much bigger scale than we've seen in his past two movies. With that, of course, there's a little bit of trepidation because I think I always worry now when someone who has kind of made their name making very um, visually distinctive uh, films kind of moving up into the studio system, you always have that panic of like, oh God, are they going to get kind of stifled? Are they going to have lots of studio interference? Um but I think in this case, it seems like a fairly happy marriage if you just watch the film and don't what don't read any interviews with Robert Eggers. Um yeah, I mean I, I think he's uh he's turned out another one for the books, really. And so could you talk through that what what you mean when you say he's graduating to this bigger budget, the studio system? What's he doing with that extra budget and how's that playing out? 
I mean, I think that if you look at The Witch and The Lighthouse, um, you're kind of, you, you know, you, there's a, it's a very sort of small cast. In the case of The Lighthouse, it's literally just two people. Um, and although from it's my understanding that those films were not necessarily the easiest films to make, um, I think in terms of kind of how much they cost and the kind of um, scale on which he was working in his first two films it's he was doing a lot with not a lot of money whereas this is you know you can I think you can kind of see the money from um the get-go there's I was gonna say there's so many horses like that's some kind of indication (laughs) that there's you know a lot of money has got in something but yeah I mean it's it's a big viking it's the I, I feel like the word epic gets thrown around a lot but it is like it's you know there's just so much kind of going on not only from the kind of um these very beautiful isolated like shooting locations in ireland and iceland to the kind of just the sheer number of people assembled for the film it is it just looks (laughs) it all looks very expensive and um it's kind of i think i've become very maybe it's something to do with like becoming very aware of like my own finances now when I watch films I'm like oh god that looks very like it costs a lot of money um and I especially coming off the back of Morbius which was such a waste of time and money I was just thinking like the amount that Eggers has done in this film for half the price of Morbius by the way um is pretty stunning I mean even down to like the kind of there's quite a few like big fights like battle scenes in this which are just kind of a real feat of like physical, um, like practical effects and mm. kind of stunt choreography on a scale that I think we don't often get to see anymore, especially in a time of kind of um, everything been done in like post production and special effects. I mean, I'm thinking about the Spider Man movie and all the kind of green screenery that went on in that, where it just kind of felt like you're watching a cutscene in a video game rather than an actual, you know, bit of cinema, which um, I think the money has kind of enabled him to produce something that is, like, kind of, like, a level up, I guess, in terms of ambition. Um, And, yeah, you know, I was kind of relieved that it does, as much as it, you know, you can tell it's an expensive big budget film it doesn't feel like a kind of faceless blockbuster there's so much kind of personality in there and so much kind of strangeness Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe not quite as much as his first two films but it's definitely you know it definitely feels like a Robert Eggers film I I, I like how you've set up that every Robert Eggers film has a standout animal uh, so like <laughs> goat in in which you have the seagulls in the the lighthouse and now horses is the defining animal you know i, I would i wouldn't even say that the defining animal there's some cro- <laughs> there's some crows doing some excellent work in this film and there's a, a bigger budget of, more animals <laughs> a cgi fox the horses like there's there are some great horses but they i, I mean horses horses don't have a great time in this film <laughs> Okay, well, Charles, um, I'd like to know what you make of this film, but also so much of the chat around this film is focusing on Robert Eggers making this sort of movie, but I suppose, how does this film play as 
just I, I suppose it's a, a genre movie, an epic, an adventure movie. What is it? Yeah, well, um, so I think approaching this movie, I was just a, a hair skeptic because I feel like the the thing about revenge epics, which this is very squarely within that tradition, they only end one way, right? You you take your revenge, and then the the old saying goes, you have to dig two graves, one for one for yourself. Um, and I think the m- movie does not really try to upend. Uh, the myth and sort of you know uh, uh, kind of deconstructed in any way it's it's played relatively straight but I think within that template of, of fiction we're seeing a lot of exploration of the sort of cultural specificity of this this is something where uh, one of the things that Eggers was most interested in not to take this back uh, right to him was the sort of mindset of the Viking culture where uh, they regarded death in a different way than we do they regard uh, you know the soul's presence in eternity in a different way than we do. And so even if this story might end in a conventional or, you know, uh, a place that you can anticipate, I think the the respect in which it gets there, the way that we get there is sort of unexpected in, in the present, you know, landscape of action movies, which are very sort of morally Manichaean, very, like, you know, straightforward about who is right and who is wrong. And this is a movie that essentially believes it's like maybe it is actually really sick to kill the person you hate most in the world and then once you've done that you might actually feel really really great Mm. and i suppose my question uh, this sounds maybe silly for me to ask is this a popcorn movie because this 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 is like a big universal of putting a lot of money behind this it's a big release for them this quarter um is this an enjoyable night of the pictures or is it an art movie well so this is what i find exciting about this is that i think it has uh all of the superficial markers of a popcorn movie i think people could very well turn out in droves to see this thing that in trailer form looks a lot like game of thrones but then when you see this it is so much more you know the the confidence of the leisurely pacing just like the unrelenting intensity of this movie this is maybe the right. loudest movie i've i've heard in so long and so yeah i love the idea that like you know mom and dad get a sitter for the kids so they can go see this and then their <laughs> hair gets all blown back and they come home just you know like rabid with bloodlust <laughs> but and so H- hannah mentioned earlier charles about how um he's playing with a much larger cast than he ever has before but both his films to date the witch had annie taylor joy very much a sort of breakout performance from her and uh, you know the lighthouse amazing centering on mm. two incredible performances any standouts from this larger cast for you for me uh let's see i, I think there is a lot uh bjork's presence in the film is short but sweet she gives a very this uh what her first movie in like 20 years since i think doing um dancer in the dark for which she won the best actress prize at Cannes film festival uh pretty yeah. crazy and so yeah i think it was uh her personal relationship to sion that compelled her to take this role and although she really just has this one scene oh she has she has a presence like no one else you watch her and it really feels like you are seeing a mystical being do her thing and so she's great nicole kidman who plays um amleth's mother is uh really she's going like high high not not camp but she's definitely giving a sort of like heightened very sort of um not vampy but you know a very sort of you know sinister performance i don't know she's good she's good (laughs) <laughs> yeah hannah any, any highlights for you to shout out yeah i i mean i love nicole um i always love it when she kind of gets her role that she can sink her teeth into um but for me definitely i was Skarsgård, who i've been a big fan of since i was 
but a wee teen watching him in True Blood. Um, <laughs> and I think that he's always been someone that's kind of on people's radar, but he usually, his roles are kind of, I'd say more like a supporting role or kind of like a villainy type role. He's obviously just come off the back of doing a few episodes of Succession where he plays this like tech bro wonderkind um again like very underrated performance in my humble opinion but um yeah it's really this is his kind of uh, first leading role in a while and i think the marriage of kind of you know him being this like six foot four norwegian hunk very very good looking very very ripped in this film with the kind of command he has over his own physicality is like thrilling to me he's the character is like quite taciturn he doesn't talk an awful lot and when he does it's usually just say something like "Mm, yes my sword will taste the blood of my enemies um (laughs) (laughs) um, but like there's this kind of real vulnerability behind his like eyes that you kind of glimpse in certain scenes like there's an exchange with his mother that you kind of see it in and when he's talking to Anya Taylor Joy's character Olga of the Birch Forest and um that for me is something that I've always a sucker for in films like seeing kind of very very striking masculine figures you have a kind of secret soft gooey core is is thrilling to me um so yeah I think he he absolutely knocked out the park and you can really tell that for him this was like a passion project type Mm. situation and uh, sometimes I think, you know, they they can be vanity projects and sometimes it kind of all comes together. And yeah, I think he is absolutely like magnetic in this. And uh, yeah, I hope we get lots more good Skarsgård films. Oh, I, I'd love to see more of him. Um, of course, we could talk about this film for a long time. Luckily, there's a whole magazine going <laughs> deeper into the Northman if you want to go pick it up from news, uh, news agent shelves right now. But Hannah, what scores would you give the Northburn? So this is in anticipation, enjoyment in retrospect out of five. So I'm going to go for four in anticipation because I was a bit concerned about the kind of potential for a misfire. I don't know. I just always want my faves to do well. Um, And then a five and a five in enjoyment and in retrospect. Yeah, I'd be very, very surprised if this isn't kind of top five of the year for me. High praise. Charles? I'm um I, I think I'm I'm triple five is across the board jackpot slot machine jackpot um I, <laughs> I I feel like Robert Eggers is the kind of uh, distinctive genre director that the American cinema is like badly in want of and it is really exciting to see the industry responding to that and and, and giving him the platform that I think the system that is supposed to work like this, we think of as being a relic of the seventies or whatever, but it still works. Uh, and that to me is an extremely heartening thing to see. And so uh, I say fives, fives, all fives. Wow. Well, there you have it listeners. If you see the Northman this weekend, let us know what you make of it at the usual channels at LW lies on Twitter, truth and movies at TCO London.com via email. Up next, we're going to kink the habit with Benedetta. Here's a short blurb for Benedetta. A 17th century nun becomes entangled in a forbidden lesbian affair, but it's her shocking religious visions that threaten to shake the church to its very core. Um, Charles, could you introduce us to Benedetta a little bit? Because you wrote a great piece for 
elderlies.com about non-exploitation, where that's a genre that can be applied to this and how this fits within that and plays within that. Could you let, let, tell us what, what's happening here? No, yeah, well, thank you. First off, thank you. Uh, right, so I, the film tells the historical true story of the nun Benedetta Carlini, who was Italian in the 17th century and uh, was a lesbian, uh, very you know, few documentations of that in history. And so Paul Verhoeven uh, has taken this story and the expectation from his past work, which is very satirical in nature, very sort of uh, iconoclastic, knowingly profane, uh, was that he would approach this as one of the, you know, of the 70s and 80s, these nunsploitation films, films about nuns getting hot under the habit because of all of the spiritual repression of Christianity, uh, which are very much the themes at play in Verhoeven's movie. But the way they are deployed in the film is not so much oriented around titillation. Although, I mean, I, I will not deny that there is definitely some of that, but it is not as trashy as one might assume from the pairing of subject matter and director. Uh, Verhoeven is someone who has spent a lot of his life thinking very seriously about Christianity, and I think in the movie you see him take ideas like salvation and damnation very seriously, even as they are used to lay out and follow through on this um, kind of game of sexual jealousy between all of the nuns who are both fighting over very hot, sexy, six-pack Jesus, as well as the uh, attractive new entrant to the abbot, whose name is Bartolomea. Mm. Could you unpack that a little bit for me? Because the Paul Verhovenness of this uh, is it really does sort of seep into every conversation or every review I've read. Because yes, we do have this expectation with films in, they made in Hollywood like Robocop and Starship Troopers that he's doing something here. And he's in this new European phase with his last film, L, where it's a little bit more... I don't want to say straight, but a little more, more dry, maybe. Um, but what's the provocation? Is there a provocation at the heart of this? Oh, yeah. Jones? Well, absolutely. This is a movie that is about sex and nuns. I think for a lot of people, that is all you need to get into the provocation space. Uh, this movie played, I think it opened in America at the New York Film Festival. That was the U.S. premiere, and it was picketed by a bunch of Christian wackos, uh, and there are some conspiracy theorists that are like, they were hired by the PR, and I say, if they were, then that's good PR. That's just, that's one-on-one. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of content in the movie that when you watch it is deliberately transgressive. There is a, can I say dildo on the podcast? Sexual aid? A, a, a whittled uh, wooden marital aid made from a figure of Jesus Christ, uh, which I think will push some buttons for people, there is very early on, um, Benedetta and Bartolomea share a really touching moment of bonding while they are explosively shitting on public toilets next to one another. Uh, and so you get all this material that is scandalizing on paper and maybe also even in practice, but the it is underplayed in such a way that it's not like, look here, look at the joke, but that there is this extreme content, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, sexual, scatological, uh, that has been situated within this story that, you know, we can take perfectly seriously as, you know, theology. Mm. Hannah, what, what did you uh, make of Benedetta? You saw this at its festival premiere, and how how has it sat with you in the years since? Yeah, I did. I um, was very excited about it, even 
before then because this has also been a long time coming because mm-hmm. it got delayed due to Verhoeven's hip surgery and then again like, wasn't there a like a billboard on the side of a whole building in Cannes one year for this years ago yeah like, like in 2018 yeah. or something it was, they were like it's ready to go and then there were <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it was I think it was originally we were hoping for like Cannes 2019 and then it was Cannes 2020 and then it was Cannes 2021 finally um, so yeah I was very much in the tank for it and that's, I don't know if I ever mentioned this on the podcast but I went to Catholic school um I've only told about a thousand people this because I think it's very funny um uh so obviously like you know anything kind of um about the uh religious dogma and kind of um uh sending up the Catholic church I'm very much in favor of I think it's uh delightful to see a filmmaker who is so um has like a real reverence for the church and it's clear that Verhoeven isn't just doing this as some kind of empty you know kind of um bite, I bite my thumb at the catholic church type thing you know he, he he understands the material he wrote a whole book on <laughs> on um on the bible so you know he's he knows what he's talking about this man and um you know I was very much um in the tank even before and then I saw it at Cannes and it was just the most delightful kind of um I don't know, 200, however many people there were in that very small audience because of the pandemic. Um, all of us just kind of, you know, giggling away and having a merry old time. And I think the thing that um, really sold it to me is that despite the kind of all the provocative, you know, bits, the Virgin Mary whittle dildo and um, the kind of, you know, this idea that um, this woman is like there's always this kind of question is like of like is Bernadetta you know just like a, a queen bullshitter or is she like genuinely seeing visions or is she um uh, mentally ill and I think you know that kind of um question that is treated with like real kind of um what, what would there would be like empathy sympathy I guess I think it's you know it's it doesn't feel like um, an exploitative film, even if it's non-exploitation. <laughs> and I think that also the, the kind of um, core romantic relationship between Benedetta and Bartolomeo is very sweet. And, um, you know, <laughs> in, in a time where queer representation continues to be a kind of bone of contention, it's just really nice to see, like, a uh, relationship between two women that feels like, actually, despite the kind of circumstances, it's very kind of, like you know, very, very loving. And I was uh, very much here for that kind of representation. And also has to be said, like, I love Charlotte Rampling playing a villain. I think that she needs to do it more because she's so deliciously kind of, um, uh, I, I want I, I was going to say campy, but I, I don't think that quite kind of covers it. She's a real kind of like a, a caricature of like an evil nun, uh, but like in a good way. I don't mean that as a diss to her. I think it's, you know, she's she's wonderful in this film. I would like to see I, I think... the, uh, I want to see the cut of Benedetta where she makes Benedetta stick her hand in the box from Dune. As a, <laughs> as a test, of, test of faith. 
I, I think there's something about the casting of Charlotte Rampling that is um, wonderfully sort of layered there because it's call, recalling the 1970s film The Night Porter that she appeared in, sort of linking back to a sort of arty exploitation erotic cinema. Um, but now, yes, she is now this sort of elder stateswoman who does pop up in things from, from June to 45 years. And she's really interesting casting in this. Um, Charles, what did you make of the... the, 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 the the central cast i hadn't seen anything before so what did you what did you make of that yeah well i mean to be completely honest i was not all that familiar with the work of uh, virginia fira who is the name of the main actress uh who plays benedetta she was in uh l his 2016 film verhoven's film and he was also in uh sybil which played at canon 2019 and so it seems like i've seen her around but this was still for me pretty much revelatory because she's given uh, so much, such a wider breadth of things to do. She is made to play scorn. She is made to play jealousy. She is made to play vulnerability. She is made, just like Hannah was saying, where uh, I think her character is, her motivations and the way she articulates them are so complex that we can never really tell whether or not she is a false prophetess or, or a real one. She um, has this habit of her voice going into this very creepy deep register goblin mode as i call it uh when she is possessed by the spirit um and so i think for that reason for me alone which maybe this is a simplistic reading i believe it uh just because mm. i think you're, you're the voice changes uh but she's wonderful as mentioned uh rampling is also excellent and then um you have uh daphne patakia is the name of the actress who plays bartolomea who is giving both sort of naivete at first she's dropped off at an uh, an abbey because she is you know an indolent child uh, who has an abusive father as well um but she matures very quickly and becomes a more canny character than we realize which is uh, everyone's everyone's got surprises everyone's got layers it's uh, in that respect <laughs> that makes the sort of psychodrama interesting to watch yeah, let's move on to scores. But I suppose in, in in our final comments, it's funny because almost both our new releases this week are at the intersection between art or auteurist cinema and maybe some sort of cult or mainstream genre as well. So um, if we could all just wrap up by also saying what we what someone who is com- going in complete, completely you know completely clean into this, what they should expect from this film. Uh, but so Charles, your scores, and if you can, <laughs> put a clean <laughs> sentence on Benedetta to wrap up. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, so as for the numbers, uh, I was not all that hot on L, to be completely frank. And so I came into this with a healthy amount of skepticism, I would say a three of expectation. Um, and in fact, when I saw it for the first time uh, last year, uh, shortly after the festival uh i was a little uh, cool on the film but seeing it again now i i think i took to it much more than i did i would say four uh i enjoyed it i love the cgi interlude in which jesus punches a snake so hard that it dies which is just fantastic jean-claude van damme does that in hard target um and so in retrospect i would say four as well i've i've been thinking about it and it uh, holds up and so yeah i think for someone unfamiliar with verhoeven unfamiliar with non-sploitation who goes in i would say uh, keep an open mind, you know, think about your own relationship to spirituality. And, and I think along those lines, you'll get a lot out of it. Mm. Hannah? Um, yeah, there's fours across the board for me. I, um, I'm really looking forward to revisiting this one, um, because I haven't seen it since Cannes, but it really has like stayed with me in terms of kind of some of the visuals. I think, um, the kind of climax of the film, which involves, um, some good old, um, burning people at the stake as the uh, 
1600s, 17th century were wont to do. They loved doing that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm very much uh, in the tank for this one. And, and I guess, God, how would I describe it? Um, I mean, the se- sexy scheming nuns. I don't like n- want. I, you know, I don't know what more people want in the cinema. Like, really? A for you. Like, what could- Do you think that Catholics will just sort of uh, be able to intuitively get some of the stuff in here, like the combination of you know the the pushing things down and the festering of inner inner stuff? Do you feel like there's more of like uh, you can tap into it? So I I think that I mean, and I have to say, like I obviously went to you know a fairly progressive Catholic school, if such a thing exists. I think that, the, <laughs> that a, you know, religious Catholic Christian peoples could get quite a lot out of this film. And I would very much encourage them to watch it. I think that, you know, um, maybe I'm just kind of uh, someone who's never really held much truck with the whole, like, blasphemy, blasphemy type of... Uh, uh, a thing that's been screamed at this film but yeah I mean I think it's if you know anything about Verhoeven it's very clear that he's not you know some kind of empty um, you know using this iconography just to kind of get column inches he's very you know very uh, I would say he's he's much kind of reverential as he is kind of provocative um, mm. so yeah you know whether whether you're a fan of uh, Jesus or not like come on there's there's, there's plenty to enjoy here yeah, I'd love to hear from some Jesus superstands out there for making this film. Because, frankly, we are like 50 years on from The Devils or Life of Brian, where there would be, particularly in the UK, this great outcry. Um, I know about... in Ireland they are protesting it. Right. Okay. Yeah, I've seen some tweets. So, yeah, listeners, please uh, yeah, send us a note about what you make of Benedetta, particularly if you're of that persuasion. Uh, but they are this week's new releases. Up next, we have our film clip, which actually has uh, sort of subtle links to both films this week. We have Conan the Barbarian. Orphaned boy Conan is enslaved after his village is destroyed by the forces of vicious necromancer Tulsa Doom and is compelled to push the wheel of pain for many years. Once he reaches adulthood, Conan sets off across the prehistoric landscape of the Hyborian Age in search of the man who killed his family and stole his father's sword. With beautiful warrior Valeria and archer Subatai, he faces a supernatural evil so this film is 40 years old this year hannah what did you make of conan the barbarian was this the first watch for you uh yeah it was very much so and you know what like i was so skeptical i was like (laughs) i sat down to watch it and i don't think i've heard i mean i know you know i knew kind of what it was i was like yeah arnold schwarzenegger you know like i know i know what conan is i did not know what conan is i was like thrilled by this film and i i you know when when charles suggested we watch it because of uh, robert eggers kind of mentioning it and saying that it had inspired the north and i was like oh okay well this will be a fun one to do because it's probably crap this film rips this film is so good um i was having a great time like everything from the kind of the um insane opening where there's a quite a long monologue about like steel well the <laughs> the, the opening is. is the nietzsche quote that is the best oh. <laughs> my gosh yeah. yeah the nietzsche quote yeah that was what got me yeah the uh, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger like nietzsche slash kelly clarkson quote um, damn uh yeah no this this film i mean I, i'm just like saying over and again this goes so hard this goes so hard but no it really does and also 
the score for this film is is incredible. You know how we always talk about um, the score for Gladiator, which, yeah, some of Hans Zimmer's best work, but the score for this film, it has no right to be as good as it is. Like, it's, it's incredible. I was, yeah, just had such a wonderful time. And I think that you can definitely see the DNA of the Northman in this film. And... I, someone should program it as a double feature at the cinema because watching them in tandem and, and kind of seeing the comparison you can make between Arnie's performance and Alexander's performance, there's these two kind of very wounded, very um, quiet men who are kind of forced to be these like very um, uh, unfeeling warriors, I guess, and have this kind of single man, single-minded desire for revenge, which also threatens to kind of destroy anything they care about. Um, yeah, I mean, God, I, I just think it's uh, a really, like, to say it's 40 years old, this really stands the test of time. And and it really is a wild one to watch now because this was one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's first major starring performances. They had to, like, have him, in a, in a, like, when they, when they contracted him, they had to make sure he wasn't appearing in anything else because they wanted his appearance as Conan to be the way the world was introduced to him properly on the big screen. But also it's, it's a sort of pseudo-comic book movie because um, it's from... Pulp Fiction, but there was uh, you know, most of the artwork was you know, Frank Rosetta, and then Marvel Comics did Conan stories for many years. So it's very much a very early uh, example of that. And everything we know now of the way the genre goes, it, everything's wide open in terms of Conan the Barbarian. It's a Dino De Laurentiis production as well, so it's coming off the back of a lot of his very strange outsized productions. But you do have John Milius and Oliver Stone behind this, two of the most macho men of Hollywood at the time, or wannabe macho men of Hollywood at the time. Um, Charles, so you, you suggested this film. So <laughs> what, what do you have to say about Conan the Barbarian? Uh, I, I could not uh, be happier with this film. Actually, so I had not seen it before. It was, as Hannah was mentioning, uh, Robert Eggers brought it up in our interview for the new issue of Little White Lies. He talked about how two of his main references were uh, Conan the Barbarian and Andrei Rublev. And this was the one I had wow. not seen. And it's pretty stunning because beat for beat, the prologue part of the Northman is almost identical. Of course, you know, it's it's executed in a different way, but narratively in terms of storyboarding, you could put one, you could, you know, uh, mm-hmm. if you made them transparent and put them over each other, you'd see that they're uh, very similar. And so I think it's, it's fun to watch in that respect. But as you're saying, yes, this movie comes from a truly insane moment in Hollywood where the new Hollywood of the seventies was dead. They were trying to figure out how they could continue making huge sums of money at once and this was their this was the best idea they had uh, i feel like this movie is very much <laughs> of a piece with uh, excalibur uh from the 80s as well which was this moment in these really violent over-the-top weirdly sexual uh fantasy so sexual. blockbusters oh my god very sexual movie it is so 80s this film you can you can see if you look very closely on the margins of each frame there's cocaine dusted around around the <laughs> the frame of the camera um but yeah between Arnold Schwarzenegger, who at the time was not taking... I mean, Hannah, you were talking about how you came into this under the impression that it was like a real clown show because people thought that Arnie was such a bad actor that they refused to take this movie seriously. That, um, you know, you think about Under Reagan, which this was a time of, you know, big pecs, oiled up muscle men, you know, uh, very strong traditional masculinity. And so you can see Milius and Oliver Stone taking that kind of to its logical extreme. Mm-hmm. Um I think, you know, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I would say, Charles, this is kind of weird when you say Andre Rublev. If you like did a sort of spectrum of cinema from Spider-Man No Way Home to Andre Rublev, <laughs> I'd probably still put this closer to Andre Rublev because it's so slow, it's so visual. Yeah. Um, it may, may be... Uh, you know, on purpose because they know that Arnold Schwarzenegger can't really deliver much in the way of dialogue, but they're using him in such a beautiful visual way, and but but also it's so austere as well in its worldview and in its anyway. This is as you say, it's the 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 fr- the front. It's, it's leading the pack in terms of eighties popcorn cinema. What we're going to see, but it still has artistic aspirations, however crazy they are behind it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They say um, art is what you can get away with, and so you can see these two guys fulfilling the imperatives of Hollywood, where they were like, "Yes, okay, this needs to be hysterically violent. We need to give uh, the people some skin to look at." But I think within that, you see them exploring these themes that I, I think both of these guys have probably thought about uh in a, in a very committed way where they're just like what does it mean to be a man especially in this <laughs> neutered time in america this was i think a time when a lot of men were just like we need to return to hunting and gathering uh because they had been <laughs> you know denatured by the comforts of suburban living and all this stuff and so yeah you see conan is sort of like the all id male fantasy of like returning to your instincts and and you know claiming your woman and vanquishing your enemies and all these ideas that um i am not a strong enough person to to engage with so so john milius of course before this had um he had directed but he'd written the the dirty harry films and oliver stone his future had a lot of sort of very macho male melodramas reflecting on the 1960s vietnam war jfk um would this class of would this would, would this fall into the category of right wing art, Charles? Do you think? Um, I, I in the way in the way that Dirty Harry is sometimes labelled as. Yeah, it's definitely socially conservative. Uh, it follows this idea of Dirty Harry, and and for that matter, um, Apocalypse Now, which Milius wrote, which is that extreme circumstances like this, places of great danger, are basically unknowable to us. That in our comfortable lives, we cannot imagine the lengths that men have to go to when they are at war or facing crime on the streets, or in a world, you know, a prehistoric world where everything wants to kill you. Those people, uh, we need them on that wall, as the uh, expression from A Few Good Men would go, that, you know, men are called on to do the the harshest work of society because no one else will, and without them, everything would fall apart, which is, uh, yes, this is extremely conservative thinking. This is, if you wanted to put a political alignment to it, this is this is Republican, meat and potatoes, family values kind of stuff. Uh, mm. which flourished <laughs> under under Reagan. And then you see that start to decline the second that George H.W. Bush and especially the sort of more sensitive humanist Clinton uh, took over in the White House. Mm. This this film has so many amazing, like, s- single things and moments in it. So I, I love James L. Jones's uh, Fringe in this. His haircut <laughs> in general yes. is fantastic. Um, There's the... Um, uh, Hannah, any... any... Oh, I'm on, sorry, Charles. just a James Earl Jones's intro shot. They take the helmet off him just like Darth Vader. <laughs> they knew. They James knew Jones, like you know, like people should talk about him in this film more because he's like he's doing more than he has to do in this film. Like, um, yeah, no, I, the, the, I mean, I, my, my absolute favorite bit is just like when it all kind of comes to a head. Um, you know, there's the kind of climactic <laughs> confrontation scene, and. Uh, it's, it's a film full of like very violent moments, but the way in which 
Conan dispatches his nemesis. I don't want to spoil it, but it's also a 40-year-old film. But, like, so he basically beheads him, but it takes, like, a comically long time for him to behead him. <laughs> and then, like, he, you know, throws the head down these, like, long steps at this temple. <laughs> and it just bounces down the steps. And then, like, all, all the, the snake cult leaders, like, followers are watching this happen. And then they all just, like, very slowly, one by one, like, start, like, throwing their torches into, like, a pile <laughs> in, like, a kind of, you know, um, gesture of, like, submission. But that's how we start every podcast, actually. That's how we start every Truth and Movies recording. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just, you know, it is such a, it is a goofy film, but at the same time, it's it's great it's such a good time i imagine this would play so well with like a midnight audience at the cinema Mm because it is like it's insane yeah like charles said you know there's like you can just like you can practically hear stone in milieu like snorting cocaine before a take like it is just like the coke energy off the scales of this one um but yeah a very 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 fun film to watch yeah and I, something i find really fascinating about this is the sort of cultural um sort of uh, back and forth this film has with uh, japanese film culture and pop culture so even though this is very much sort of in, inspired by you know pulp adventures and comic books and everything they do have a couple of like specific shout outs to japanese cinema the bit where conan's being uh, given all that those tattoos when he goes um mm. uh, has his uh, sort of resurrection moment that's a re- re- reference to kwai dan also there's a like seven samurai-esque sequence at the end where it's like the the, the few fight the many um but then also this film um is one of the key texts that inspired the video game series golden axe the sega series like <laughs> and you can see it because the, th- the sort of big hulking guy with a sword little kind of guy and then the sort of in the midpoint between that is like you know a woman who can do lots of twirling with swords those three characters very much inspired by this film also there are specific sound effects that they've sampled from this film that appear in golden axe so anyone that had that on the mega drive as a kid will just have that <laughs> nostalgia button pushed by this movie it's crazy I- i'd be really intrigued charles and hannah if you go and watch the sequel to this conan the destroyer it's a it's very similar to what happened with superman where uh the first film was a very artistic movie um and then the sequel they handed it to a different filmmaker who came from a different tradition the sequel is much more comic booky and cartoony yeah. and then they have a spin-off of red sonja as well uh <laughs> much more 80s and much more silly i think but uh yeah if you if you follow it it's gonna be crazy have either <laughs> of you seen the um was it jason momoa Tw- no, 2010? oh my no. god i forgot that existed wow I did think like that. I mean, I haven't seen it, and I probably won't see it because I don't think it did very well. Um, but I do think that's quite good casting. I I think that the only thing with Jason Momoa is I think it's kind of like a he's more of a like you know a nod and a wink type. This you is know, yeah. This he's is very aware. Absolutely, it is that Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> has zero sense of irony, which is the only way that this movie works. I feel like the 2021 version sort of tries to call attention to all the ways in which it might have been goofy back in the 80s or whatever. There was no room for scare quotes. There is no room for for you know being playful about yourself in this movie. This it only works if you are all in. You got to have warrior mindset. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I really think that's what makes it very refreshing, considering most what sort of blockbuster this time type we have today. Mm-hmm. Oh, but God. Charles, thank you for for suggesting. Well, thank you to Robert Eggers. <laughs> I mean, he he brought this into our our life, our world. What if the, this becomes a repertory staple because of of Northman? Conan Fever. That would, be be- that, I would be so happy with that. Mm. I think that would be beautiful for all of us. Let's make that happen. 
listeners, let us know what you make of either of the new releases this week, The Northman or Benedetta, or of course, Conan the Barbarian. We can email us at the usual channels, truthandmovies at tclondon.com via email, or maybe tweet us at LWLies on Twitter. Next week we have Happening. We also have the ultimate Nick Cage movie, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And because of that, in Film Club, we're going back to a film with more than its fair share of Cage, Adaptation. Charles, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been such a treat chatting through these films with you listeners. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Truth and Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for Little White Lies. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Michael Leader, and my guests this week were Charles Bromesco and Hannah Strong. The podcast is produced by Sam Lucas, Ellie Aitken, Jamie Maisner, and it's edited by Steph Watts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.